0: Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Hello, listeners. Today I've been thinking about another fairly specific religious topic, specifically religious Christian topic but it certainly bleeds out into the rest of the world as well, the secular world, the atheistic world. So let's dive right in. Scapegoat Satan. That's kind of the springboard for where I've been going this last couple of days. So what do I mean by Scapegoat Satan? Oh, says the mother who's been going through some... Difficult times, maybe financially, maybe with her children. Satan's really fighting me on this one. A lot of Christian mothers will talk like this. Or the dad who just lost his job. Satan is having a heyday in my life right now. Another other similar examples. Oh, says the parent to their child, it's not that you've been irresponsible, you're just being opposed by the bad spirits. Or That's not what they would say, but by the demons or something like that. Now, first of all, I just want to point out that while Satan, as a character or, you know, as a literal being in the universe, he certainly is brought to us through the Bible. Now, some of the things that are said about Satan, or at least the words Satan, are fairly misunderstood, such as when Jesus told Peter get thee behind me Satan, he wasn't calling him a demon. He wasn't calling him the devil of hell. He was calling him opposition. He was saying, you're coming against me in my mission. Get out of my way. That's what the word means in its specific context there. But yet at the same time, Lucifer, the enemy of our souls, other references to a specific devil of hell, as well as demons, is very often brought up. Now here's what we do not see in the Bible. The Israelites made a golden calf and began worshiping it because Satan tempted them. Or we don't see David went to bed with Bathsheba and then had his husband her husband Uriah killed because Satan tempted him. Now in the New Testament we do see things like do not allow Satan to tempt you or God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle. That kind of argues the contrary. There are certainly some biblical precedents for this whole idea of, oh, I'm going through things because Satan is blah, blah, blah. Now, the problem that I have with this is, first of all, that it doesn't really have a whole lot of scriptural backing. Not that it, again, has none. But what it is really doing intellectually is a great deal more dangerous. Let's, for example, turn towards a more casual or secular kind of outlook on things. The way that people use language in other circumstances. For example, you maybe had a really poor upbringing, bad bad abusive parents, right? You know, it's a topic that I bring up fairly often. This is something even I caught myself saying just the other day. Oh, bad parenting happens. Does it? Now, this is the way a lot of people will talk, right? Oh, that just happens. Oh, this just happens. Or, you know, some something in the environment, perhaps the economy is really causing you stress right now. If you're not particularly religious or just not one of the scapegoat Satan kind of people, you might not say, oh, Satan's having a heyday. You might say oh, you know, economic downturns just happen, or something like that. Do they? Do they really? Fact is, no. They do not just happen. People are making specific decisions, and yeah, they might be a large portion of decisions, a huge majority of people making particularly bad decisions. It might be the government making decisions in a specific direction. The point is... These things, there are things that just happen, yes. But when it comes to things that certainly do go back to the wills of individual people, you can be sure that it has to do with the lack of will to do something good or the presence of will to do something selfish. For example, why do we have so many economic downturns? A lot of people, one example, will turn towards omnibus spending bills that the government decides to implement, such as they just did. This is, by the way, the beginning of 2023, for those who are listening at different times. And our government just instituted another $1.3 trillion omnibus spending bill. And yeah, there's Keynesian economics and a lot of economic theories that actually believe not only that that doesn't cause economic problems, but that it specifically helps it. Whether or not you believe that is not really the point. The point is, these kinds of decisions are going to have an effect on the economy. Whether you think that's positive or negative is another matter. I am definitely of the opinion that it will have a negative effect. Now what are the motives for doing this sort of thing? Oh, we're going to help with other countries, we're going to give them money, and then beneath the table we're going to be taking a lot of cutbacks ourselves and putting a lot of the money in our pockets and so on and so forth. People who are not really really aware that this happens in the government really need to do some study. Listen to people who know what the heck they're talking about. Anyway, the main point that I'm getting to. Let's move away from government for a second and use a different example. People who buy frivolous things. Maybe they have children who are whining at them and instead of really talking to them about living civilly in their family unit. They just want to get rid of the yelling and screaming, so they buy something for their child. Or they don't really need the new car, but they're getting kind of tired of the old one. It's still working totally fine. There's no repairs that they're not really prepared to pay for that are still that are needed on the car or anything like that. That's my current situation, by the way. Pretty old car, I've had it for a lot of years, and there's a repair that I don't need to do, but let's say that, or don't want to spend for, uh, but let's say that, you know, it's literally having no problems, but you just just want to get a new car, so you go into debt. People are making those kinds of decisions from the highest levels of government all the way down to your neighbor on a consistent basis. What I'm trying to get at here is that these kinds of short-sighted, I just want to get the goods right now. I don't really care about what effects it has on the environment. Here's a different example. Theft goes up regularly when distracting things are going on. So, for example, if there is already a riot going on in a town, say, Philadelphia, which right now is fairly constant, theft is going to go up in that area. Why? Because it's it's a good opportunity. Do these thieves care? about what's going to happen to the markets that they're thieving from, they might end up ha- end up having to shut down through bankruptcy because of all the thefts that happened in a very short amount of time and they can't take the cost. Does the thief care about that? Does the thief care about the money that they're taking from somebody else? They might be literally taking away meals from little children in the end result for all they know. Do they care? No. What they care about is getting the goods they can get in the moment right now. Now, you might argue, hey, they might have their own children who are starving or something like that. and Sure, perhaps, but that doesn't justify the action. They are still looking at the moment right in front of them and looking to get their advantage right now. And again, the point that I am making is that when you take all of these kinds of decisions and combine them all together, you might very well get the results of rising costs for your common meat your vegetables, your fruits. And a lot of it, and certainly not all of it, there's things that turn the economy based on much more innocuous and innocent reasons. But when we get sudden spikes or steady increases, a lot of it is in fact in the economy as a whole due to people having short-sighted desires to benefit themselves Not not necessarily always in the here and now, but at least ASAP. They just want to line their own pockets. So what I'm trying to get at here is the more you understand how the world works, unless there is something that just kind of happened, like the movement of tectonic plates, causing an earthquake, or a volcano erupting, or a really horrible storm, maybe it flooded in your area if it's not something like that things don't just happen people are making specific decisions that cascade down sometimes a very long and complicated chain of events this decision results in that person making that decision and that person making that decision and that person making that decision and, that that decision, and it trickles down all the way to you and Not all of those decisions may necessarily be immoral or short-sighted or selfish, but some of them will be. And the result of that, even including those who may have made their decisions very responsibly, very er, um, competently, still going to result in you having a harder time today. But back to the first examples, bad parenting doesn't just happen. That was my own mistake. No. People are making specific decisions, even if those decisions are to avoid suffering that they don't want to face. You could go back to the thieves during a riot. Why do they do it during a riot and they don't do it in broad daylight where there's a, when there's a cop around and there's a bunch of other people witnessing? Because they would face consequences. Not because they don't want to do it if they were given the opportunity, but because the consequences are right in front of their faces. In like manner, if a parent is abusing their child, is it because they don't know that it's wrong? Well, they might not allow themselves to fully be aware of that fact, but they certainly are aware most abusive parents are not going to and add to their abuse in public where there's a bunch of people watching, especially if there is an authority figure. They more or less do exactly the same thing. They are merely avoiding consequences. That is a decision as well. Now you cascade that kind of a decision over and over and over again, in the same individual, the same person, refuses to face their guilt, refuses to face Legitimate consequences for their actions. They refuse to face any kind of reprimand over and over and over again. And you could argue, and I've heard the argument, I think it is fairly sound, that those people have eventually relinquished their very actual ability to make other decisions. They've locked themselves in, they now have started to serve the absence of negative stimuli in their lives. They're only looking out for the comfort of the moment, and that's about it. Is it possible that they've fully forfeited their free will? As a Christian, I can't go that far. But I can say that they have made it monumentally hard for themselves to make different decisions. It is like the first decision is a mere molehill, but by the time you've made the 1,000th similar decision to avoid negative consequences of legitimate justice upon you, well, you've made that molehill into a mountain. It's going to be amazingly difficult to make the decision not to do the wrong thing, not to again lack the will to do the right thing in the moment. These things do not just happen. Now, There is an extreme form of this, and this is where atheism comes in, as well as Calvinism. And I can't say that I'm not slightly happy to be able to be putting these two things together. Calvinists and atheists both believe that we essentially have no free will. That one way or another, things are being decided for us. Now, I'm not saying it's every atheist, and it's certainly not every Christian. Calvinist Christians essentially believe that we are at-rock-bottom automatons, and God is the one who really has made the decision for every at least major moral choice that we ever make. We aren't making those decisions ourselves. We're just being used for his glory, for his purposes to fulfill his will throughout the course of time. And what we think are our decisions are mere illusions that are the result of various stimuli that God, through the cascade of events, has sent our way, and we respond to those stimuli in a similar, or in the predetermined fashion. Now, I might go into my counter argument to Calvinism another time, because as a Christian, that's fairly interesting. I won't do that right now. Atheists make a very similar argument. I believe it was Richard Dawkins who specifically said we only dance to our DNA. It's actually extremely similar to the Calvinist argument, or at least some of the Calvinist arguments I have heard. We are merely responding to the biological, chemical, etc. stimuli that has been implanted within us. And that's all we're doing. We're not making moral decisions. We're not basing our choices on, our de- on uh, comparing them to ideal standards. We're just dancing to our DNA. We're just doing what we are essentially programmed to do. Now, if that were true, then I could totally get behind the scapegoat Satan stuff. And I could totally get behind the, oh, these things just happen. Because what you have essentially done is you have removed not only the possibility of people to make any specific decisions, any meaningful decisions whatsoever, what you have also deleted is the very capacity to do good or evil. Let me tell you why. Well, let me make the argument. Let's say that you have a horrible situation. There's a girl who is a slave, and the family that has encaptured her, or has captured her and is using her for their services has demanded that she does various chores around the house. She has to make the bed, she has to set the table, she has to cook. And she has no choice about the matter. In fact, if she does not do these things, she's going to be abused, possibly physically hurt, maybe even killed, if she refuses to do it. Now, would you look at that woman, that young lady, and say as she feverishly and meticulously makes beds, sets tables, etc., that she has developed fantastic disciplines of etiquette and organization. No! Of course you wouldn't. She's under coercion. If she doesn't do those things, she's going to be punished. In fact, if you rescued that woman from that situation, she might, with a sigh of relief, Stop doing all of those things, and it might be extremely difficult to convince her to have any sort of discipline in that area because, frankly, she's going to have PTSD if she does. That's going to take a long time to get her back around to the point where she can actually legitimately have those disciplines in her life. But you're not going to say while she's doing it while enslaved and under coercion that she's developing these disciplines like some ideal, wonderful, traditional woman. Heck no. Or if you have somebody who's in in captivity and he's deprived of food, and maybe he started out fairly overweight and now he's getting skinny, do you congratulate him? Oh, you've lost so much weight. Good for you. Well done. No. He's being deprived of food. He doesn't have a choice in the matter. He might be practically starving, but being starved, again, in a coercive environment. In other words, we don't consider somebody to have fine etiquette or to have good dietary choices if they are forced to do it. We don't even believe that. We don't have that in our common parlance. Now, if and of course we have to know these facts, right? We have to know that it's not a situation of coercion, and that can be hard to suss out. But if we know for a fact that a person has chosen a certain discipline because they chose it, not because they were under some specific pressure or discipline to do it, but because they chose it, then we do, in fact, consider them to have good habits. Now, like I said, this can get fairly hazy. This can get somewhat foggy. And it explains one of the reasons why I personally do not like, in in common church culture, hey, you need to go out on a missions trip. You need to volunteer at church. You need to read your Bible every day. You need to pray every day to, quote, be a good Christian. The reason is that is not a situation of full coercion, but it is a situation of what we could call very strong incentive by people who, quote, have the authority to tell you what it is to be a good Christian. I grew up around these people. I never really got involved myself, and it was because I had this kind of bad taste about it. I grew up around these people, and they're trying to they're getting involved in this, volunteering in that, going out on, on this missions trip, doing this and that and that and that. And now as an adult, I'm looking for these people, wondering what happened. And now, granted, not all of them, I think some of them genuinely wanted to do these things, did them honestly. And they did receive benefits from it. And then you have a number of others who not only essentially just kind of fell off the bandwagon. You can't even find them anymore. You don't know where they are, who they are anymore. But some of them very clearly have just gone off the deep end. What good was their good Christianing? See, I have nothing against those activities in and of themselves. I, in themselves, I do have a problem with those activities under the strong incentive of essentially being told, whether or not it's with words, essentially being told, this is what it takes to be a good Christian. You're sapping a large portion of personal will out of the situation. Now, I'm not saying I know how to reform this this situation. I'm not saying that there's a better way to do it necessarily. I'm just saying that's why I didn't do it, because I knew that I would only be doing it if I ever did it with that specific motive. Because, check mark, it makes me a good Christian. Some people who are doing these things, and I've made the quote before, Malcolm Muggeridge said, public benevolence is never a replacement for private virtue. Some of these people who are volunteering this and organizing that and involved in this charity, if you saw them at home, you would be absolutely horrified. Thinking they already have it made, quote, as a Christian, they perhaps think that they can just do whatever they want at home. They can bully, they can yell, they can insult, they can scream, they can call names and maybe even hit people. Because they already do, they already have their check marks. They already have their boxes filled for being, quote, a good Christian. So, going back to scapegoat state, oh, these things just happen. If you take these kinds of statements, when it truly does involve the will of other people, What you are effectively doing, and I get the motive for it, but what you are effectively doing is removing the very thought in your mind, the paradigm of the capacity for human beings to do great evil, or at very least to do something quite selfish, something even at the very highest levels that may cascade down to your point and make The economics of the situation or the peace on your streets. The level of crime in town to go in a very negative direction. You say, oh, Satan's having a heyday. Satan is working very hard in this and this area. And I'm not saying that Satan doesn't do things in the world. I absolutely believe that he does. But very clearly in these situations, there are people making specific decisions with negative consequences. And you're refusing to look at that. Even when we do raise the question legitimately about Satan, or let's just say the enemy of our souls, devils and demons and so on. How many of you, my listeners, have heard the original myth of the vampire? How it goes is, a vampire will walk up to your front door Knock and wait for you to open the door and ask to be let in. And if you refuse, if you say no, he can't get in. Period. That's part of the myth, the original myth. If you refuse his entry, he can't come in. If you allow his entry, you're not only he's not only gonna walk in, but you have effectively given him permission, you've given him power to do whatever he wants. Now, the fact that this is the original myth, as far as I understand it, I think is extremely telling. See, even when we invoke the activity of the enemy of our souls, it is under the same parameters as the original vampire myth, as far as I understand it, especially if you are a Christian and you believe that you have the Holy Spirit, as I do myself. If you do not give the enemy of your soul permission to be in a certain area of your life or heart or soul, he's not going to be allowed to be there. So, how about all these other people? Who, yeah, Satan may be very active in their lives. Okay, did they or did they not allow that to happen? You might say, oh, they're not Christians. Oh, they're not filled with the Holy Spirit, blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, how many people are surprised to find the activity of God in their lives? It happens actually fairly often. How about people over in the East right now, members of Islam, having dreams about Jesus, saying, I am the true Messiah. I am the true prophet. The reason I'm bringing this up is people can be very surprised, yes, that they have allowed the activity of Satan into their lives. And, of course, most of the people who do that are never going to admit it well, until they turn around and see it, and that's when the shock happens. But at the same time, people might be very shocked to realize that they let God in, too. How did that happen? It's one of the big mysteries and one of the areas where the argument to free will gets legitimately pretty difficult. Where where is the foundational point of our free will? But on both ends, there is something deep within us that has allowed one thing or the other to occur, we may become aware of it later on and be kind of shocked by the fact but on both ends of the spiritual spe- spiritual spectrum we are allowing these things to happen or not allowing these things to happen in some way or other which we can't fully comprehend so returning to areas of real life that we can explain at least to some extent again these things don't just happen And the point I'm making is, even when the spiritual is involved, if we remove the capacity, and again, there may be a fairly benevolent and kindly, well, benevolent meaning, and kindly nice motive for not wanting to believe that people can do such horrible things, like abusing their children. The fact of the matter is that by removing from them the very idea that they could do horrible things that trickle down to the point of horrible things happening to us, not only removes their capacity to do evil, it removes also their capacity to do good. Because what you have effectively done is removed the free will of an individual. If you're going to invoke free will, you cannot only invoke the ability to choose to do good, you have to include the ability to do evil. This goes back to the more metaphysical and existential kind of arguments about where evil comes from. Well, as a Christian, I believe there is a God and he is good. And if there is such a thing as a God with the nature of good, and his nature is the very definition of good, then there has to be that which is not. That which is the absence of that. This is simply logical. Now, that doesn't mean that that opposite of good is, has to have the ability to be enacted. But as we just went through, in order for good to be really really good itself, for virtue to be virtuous, it must be chosen. Without the choice, it's just coercion. Without the choice, it can't be good in the true sense. So like I said... Just because there is an existence of good and and its opposite, which we call evil, doesn't mean people have to be able to choose it. But if God wanted to extend virtue in the universe, then he would have had to have made beings that can choose. They would have to have the ability to choose God or not God, which is really essentially the same as saying, choose the good nature or choose not the good nature. And what do we call not the good nature? Well, that would be evil. So we have to have free will, not just for the possibility of evil, but for the possibility of genuine virtue and good. So when we say that Satan is responsible for this, Satan is responsible for that, Satan is responsible for that, oh, this and that and that and that just happened, we just dance to our DNA, God decides what the fate of the wor- what the fate of the world is going to be and we have no choice in the matter whatsoever. What you are really doing is you are taking away part of the essential nature of what it means to be human. You are removing humanity from humanity. Now that's not I am not arguing that We, when Christians go to heaven and everybody who has had fidelity to God goes to heaven, that we're going to still have the temptation to do evil. I would argue, yes, that I think we might still theoretically at least have the ability to do evil. I think it's even arguable that God has the, quote, ability to do evil. But as I've argued in previous podcasts, if God did that, then he would be being, not God. Would he blip himself out of existence? I don't really know, but... I don't think either that that is an option, nor that it is really any kind of a possibility. I've seen video games that get this. What do I mean by that? Well, there are video games out there, I've played one in particular, where you make moral decisions along the way, and you continue to build up either good or evil, and then there comes a point where you more or less solidify that choice. And when you come, it's kind of back to the original source of this character's superpower, and he taps into it again. And if you've chosen to do good, you lock it. You are a good person for the rest of the game. If you've done evil the entire time, you lock that into place, and you do evil for the rest of the game. What I'm getting at is that I think the real transition into heaven is not... Removing our capacity to do evil, not removing our free will, it solidifies the fact that, or I think personally, that going to heaven will solidify our choice to do good, to have fidelity to God. And the temptation, the illusion of desirability for the opposite of that will simply no longer be there. We talk about our eyes being opened. I think that is essentially what will happen we're going to see the sham that temptation always really was. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Did Adam and Eve simply get forced or coerced by God or the serpent to do what God specifically told them not to do, or did they choose to do it? It specifically points out, when Eve saw that the fruit was desirable and good for food, She took of it and ate it. And we don't know exactly what Adam's motive was, but I can't imagine that it was anything much less, shall we say, short-sighted than that. If we take away from ourselves the right, the capacity, or just the paradigm and idea that we can make free choices... And that means that we really can do great good, and we can do great evil. If we remove that from the picture, we remove humanity itself. So, that's all I had today. I hope you all found it interesting as always. Signing off for now.